The views on this podcast belong uniquely and solely to the mouths from which they emanate. Being able to speak your own language is so very much part of the human experience and trying to make space for all people to be able to do that is huge. Today with The Weekly Linguist, we are interviewing Dr. Joyce Bennett of Connecticut College. Joyce was born in Ohio. She is from London, Ohio. And the way that we know each other is because we were both in the Tulane Anthropology Department. And you were with Judy too, right? I sure was. Yeah, she did the first few episodes of the podcast, but I think Joyce must have gotten done a couple years before me because I don't think we ever met personally. I don't think we did. Uh, I finished up in 2014, so I believe we just missed each other, but it sure is great to be here. So now you're at Connecticut College and you work in sociolinguistics among the Maya of Guatemala, the Cachiquel. Yeah, I work with uh, Cachiquel Maya speakers in Highland, Guatemala, and much like Judy, this is not a coincidence, she uh, converted me early in my graduate career to working in that region, uh, but it's got amazing people and it's just hard to resist. So that's where I work. I work mostly with women. Um, I know early on in my research, trying to work towards my doctorate, I tried working on questions that didn't necessarily have to do a lot with gender, but uh, the realities of field work and the places where I was interviewing people was that men often didn't want to talk to me um, by myself. I would either have to go get a man chaperone for them to uh, talk to me appropriately or um, work with women. And, you know, there's not necessarily a great deal of literature on Maya speaking women, but there sure are a lot of assumptions about what they do in terms of speaking language and their roles in language conservation and revitalization. So one thing led to another and uh, here we are. Well, you know, now that you mentioned that, I did a little Googling. And for our listeners, I'll put this up on the show notes. There are a few interesting titles that you have published, and these titles will lead very well into our conversation today. Uh, let's see. I Became More Maya, International Cachiquel Maya Migration. I also found uh, Traje's Future, Gendered Paths in Guatemala. And we'll talk in a minute about what Traje is. Uh, then I found Mothering Through Language, Gender, Class, and Education in Language Revitalization Among Cachiquel Maya Women in Guatemala. And this is kind of what we're going to be talking about today. Your new book that's coming out through the University of Alabama, I assume this year because we just started this year. And going yes. back to what you were mentioning a moment ago, I remember I took one of the summers and went down... I guess when Brett and Rebecca and Judy and a bunch of those folks were down in Guatemala. So I took the opportunity to go down to Antigua and I spent, I don't know, uh, a week or two down there and obviously didn't experience it like you and Judy have. But I have a little glimpse or an image in my mind of some of the things that I know that we'll be talking about today. And you and I also have a common friend, actually, Miss Ishnal who is a wonderful friend of ours. And so, yeah, uh, I hear you talking about the clothing and all of these things. And I have images of these things in my mind. I can picture these things. So I'm looking forward to talking to you about it. But I do, before we go further, one of the things I'd like to do on the website for our listeners, weeklylinguist.com, is put up a section in the coming weeks for resources. 
and I wanted you to speak super quickly. Correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't you receive one of those floss scholarships to go study Cachiquel in Antigua? Uh, foreign language area studies. Didn't you tell me you used one of those scholarships to go study? I sure did. You know, when I first went, uh, I was still an undergraduate, so I was able to use funding from my undergraduate institution, which I think a lot of students don't know that they can do, but you can often do that, especially if you've got like an internship program or something like that. Uh, but once I started graduate study with duty at Tulane, I applied for and was uh, grateful to benefit from a foreign language area study grant that covered um, my summer study, my second uh, and third summers of study for Kakshiko. Um, and I'm not, you know, this is transformative in terms of the life course of a scholar to be able to really learn a language. Um, it changes and transforms how you think about your work and how you interact with people. So uh, it's a great resource and people should definitely take advantage of it. Absolutely. I did one as well. I took the one in Filipino, which is basically Tagalog, in Madison, Wisconsin, mm -hmm. at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. You had the advantage of being able to go to Guatemala. I didn't have the chance to go to the Philippines for that particular class. But I will say, taking that class as somebody who was going to be working in the Philippines was absolutely an immeasurable advantage. Um, after having gone through those, I think for us, it was like eight weeks but anyway, the advantage of it, if any of our listeners are ever interested, I don't know how it worked for you, Joyce, but they paid for our entire class, room and board, and gave us a little spending money as well. And so I basically was able to take the class, get the credit for free, and so got the introduction to the language. Um, and you can go back the following years to do the second level, the third level, etc., and so on. Anyway, so I'll post a link to this information about FLOSS. F-L-A-S, on the show notes for the episode, and we'll add it to the resources page on the website when that's up and running as well. We talked a little bit, Joyce, about your book, and I'm interested in hearing more about it. I'm rather intrigued initially by the title, Good Maya Women, Migration, Clothing, and Language Revitalization in Highland Guatemala. When I read that title, the first image that came to my mind was being in the square in Antigua, uh, where you see all the Mayan ladies, and they have their traje on, their traditional dress, and some of them are selling different things. And I also remember being in discussions where the ladies talked about the fake traje coming in and being produced and uh, all of these issues. But anyway, tell us super quick, because we're going to be using this word a lot. What is traje? T-R-A-J-E. Yeah. So traje is... Uh uh, ironically, a Spanish word <laughs> used to refer to indigenous Maya clothing. Uh, in Caxiquel, one would talk about it as katsiak, our clothing. Uh, but it's it's non-westernized clothing um, that typically the blouses are woven on a backstrap loom. Uh, women, this is for women's clothing. There, There's men's compliments as well, but they're much less common these days. And I'm happy to talk about why that is. But uh, for the most part, men no longer use traje, and it's really uh, women's domain. Um, but it's quite distinctive from uh, a t-shirt or a button-down that you and I might wear. Um, it is especially for women's blouses. The um, woven pieces on backstrap looms are incredibly intricate. They're very time and labor-intensive to make. They're expensive. 
Um, they are usually matched with a skirt that's about six to eight yards of fabric uh, wrapped around, um, which is quite the process to learn if you did not grow up this way. Um, and it's held on with a belt that is cinched around the waist. Traje uh, is usually indicative of a person's town, so they're town specific, although today because people travel around so much, you can often acquire pieces from any town in Guatemala. Um, but, um, you know, usually people have several outfits from their own town and it sort of indicates where they're from, um, what style of weaving they like, right? So these pieces encode all kind of information about a person. Um, even in the town where I do most of my research in Santa Catarina Palopo on Lake Atitlan in the department or state of Sololá, um, people know I have several pieces that have been made specifically and gifted to me. People know exactly not only what town I'm from, but who wove it. Can you imagine walking around with with a shirt and people say, oh, I know who wove that because of the way the thread is wound, the, the particular uh, form of design, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, and there, you know, there's all kinds of different pieces from ceremonial to daily use, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's, I could talk about this all day, so I'll just stop there. <laughs> no, it's okay. Do tell us really quickly why the men are not wearing it though. Yeah, you know, men have stopped wearing it for a lot of reasons that go along with or are complementary to the same reasons that uh, indigenous languages in Guatemala in general are endangered. So a lot of the reasons that you and Judy Maxwell talked about in some of the earlier podcasts, um, and that includes things like uh, men were, when conscripted into military service in the Civil War, which lasted from 1960 to uh, 1996, um, were often forced out of their indigenous traje. Um, what I think of or term uh, and write about as neoliberal globalization forces, uh, ones where uh, certain kinds of behavior, mostly non-Indigenous behavior, uh, is prioritized and rewarded by things like opportunities for advancement, um, education, jobs. Um, all of those are tied to wearing westernized clothing that's westernized, not Western like cowboy boots, but westernized uh, t-shirts, button-down shirts, kind of um, machine-made cloth clothing. Um, if men show up in indigenous traje in, in a lot of towns these days, they're going to get made fun of, discriminated against. Um, you know, there's why, I think Judy said in it, one of your early podcasts, why would, why would you do that if it's not a rewarded behavior? Um, and in some sense, the fact that there are even still a few old men wearing traje today is, is quite a testament to the resilience of Maya peoples in Guatemala. But um, it certainly is on the way out for men's use. Okay, well, your book talks about this. Uh, let's give the title again. Good Maya Women, Migration, Clothing, and Language Revitalization in Highland Guatemala. So before we go any further, give us a general idea. What is your book about? So my book is really about how indigenous women's migration contributes to women's empowerment in their home communities. And I'm particularly interested in women that I call migrant women, but who aren't often part of the literature on migration uh, because they're migrating within Guatemala or within Central America. Um, there's a whole lot of literature on migration to the United States and up North, but um, quite frankly, that's not the majority of migration happening within and around Central America. So I'm interested in that kind of really um, 
daily life experience of normal everyday women in the Highlands. Um, the thing about it is that communities and scholars alike often think that one, women are the sort of last conservators and those who hold on to ethnic identity the longest before being absorbed into global trends that move them away from indigenous ethnic identity. Um, and two, that when women start migrating for work outside of their hometowns, they're certainly going to be exposed to those westernized values and they will leave behind their language and clothing. Um, but the women that I work with, which is not all women, but a select number of women don't do that. They do the opposite, where their experiences outside of their hometowns um, through you know, experiences of racial discrimination, um, engaging with tourists who think that their Trajan language are really cool, right? A whole, a whole myriad of experiences um, really encourage them to come home and invest in that language and clothing, which goes against the kind of normative narrative that we have of neoliberalism and globalization or free market policies that dictate global markets today, um, that, that globalization will kill ethnic identity, right? Um, so I'm, I'm really interested in the ways that women work against those narratives, uh, especially when they come home and what that means both for their communities and for their experience of daily life. I guess it's a little bit of an advantage that I have having been to Antigua and having seen some of these things and having heard people like Ishnal and other people talking about it. I have a concept of what you're talking about in my mind, but to have a book like this come out while this idea of immigration is such a hot topic issue in the U.S. and people have this idea that everybody's just trying to come here. But I think it's interesting to look at these questions uh, from a local perspective and look at how these people are working to empower themselves as well in their current situation. Uh, but you talked about this and you argued that their activism comes from their engagement in neoliberalism or in other words, global economics. Um, I'm not quite sure I know exactly what you mean by neoliberalism, so can you talk about that for a second? Sure. This is a term I think everybody should know about because it dictates what's happening in the world around us. Well, hence this podcast. We're letting them know we're getting it out there. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you just break it down, right? Neo, new, liberalism, liberal, free trade market, and the kinds of um, you know laissez-faire approach to neoliberal markets or to liberal markets that we've thought about um, and privileged, certainly in the United States. But it's just a way of saying a renewed interest in free trade. Um, and it's certainly been dominant uh, post-World War II, really picked up with global trade policies in the 1970s and 80s. Um, and some of the results of it that you might think of, easy examples are things like NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement for Central America, CAFTA, the Central American Free Trade Agreement. And they're basically policies that are brokered by uh, supranational organizations like um, the United States government, the World Bank, the IMF, International Monetary Fund, uh, that do things like create free trade zones, reduce tariffs, um, allow foreign investment in other countries. And that's especially important in a country like Guatemala, where because of a lot of those policies, all of a sudden we've got um, all kinds of foreign industry being able to come in and buy land in tax-free or tax-benefited ways uh, that then start overtaking the economy and transforming Guatemala from a place where subsistence farming was how the vast majority of people survived 
say three generations ago, um, depending on where we're talking about, because there's also a plantation economy in the history that's complicated. But you know, today, the vast majority of people are no longer subsistence farmers um, and instead are integrated into a, a wage labor market and that's how they provide for themselves, right? But that's because of a neoliberalization or free trade economy that has made the world codependent, right? So we're all relying on each other. Just the other day, I bought watermelons in the middle of winter from Guatemala. Right? <laughs> I was actually thinking the same thing as you were talking about buying pineapples at Albertsons. Yep. That's how it happens. So, so neoliberal economics, free trade economics, it often gets coded, uh, especially in academic literature, as globalization. But it's, if if you're thinking about globalization, it's the economic forces behind that. Before we move into the question of language, I want to tarry a moment on this last topic. I remember several discussions when I was in Antigua. I think with Ishnal, uh, with Judy, with some of the other ladies. One of the issues that they were having was, I've often said, Joyce, that my memory's bad, so correct me where I'm wrong, but it was something to the effect of Asian-made traje being used and sold to the tourists in Antigua, which was devaluing local traje. Am I on the right track here? Am I remembering this correctly? Yeah, so there is a trend of, um, it's sort of like machine-made knockoffs of traje that are quite distinctive. They don't look like the clothing that I might wear on a normal basis, uh, but they're really cheap compared to hand-woven on a backstrap loom kind of cloth. Um, and a lot of women are choosing, a lot of women in the Highlands are choosing to use those. One, because global warming, the Highlands are getting hotter uh, and, and some of those machine-made cloths are easier. They breathe a little more. And two, because they're cheaper. And if you are under increasing economic pressure, which there's really good evidence to show that uh, the free trade market in Guatemala has really put increased pressure, financial pressure on the vast majority of indigenous families um, so that they are qualitatively poorer now than they were a generation ago. Um, of course, you would make that choice and purchase machine-made cloth over something more expensive. So yeah. It, it devalues the work of a lot of people who are working very hard with their hands and with their looms to produce some of that. And I remember there were some ladies who were quite upset about it. Absolutely. I bought this belt at the place under the arch. I forget the name of it, uh, but you know, there's an arch in Antigua and there's a, a, a store right past the arch. Nimput, the name of that story, they, they source a lot of their materials from good places. So that's a good place to go. I bought this belt and then I took it to Ishnal and I said, is this okay? And she looked at it and said, yeah, that's okay. Well, bringing this back to your book, how are Maya women therefore working to revitalize language and clothing? And you've connected language and clothing a few moments ago. So in answering these questions, connect them a little more. Sure. So I actually, in my analyses, I treat clothing as a kind of language. And I'll tell you a little bit more about why. I call it a, a co-text, uh, which is an increasing choice that scholars are making. But particularly in the Maya region, 
Um, clothing and language are two of the most vibrant and immediate identifiers of a person's ethnicity. So when you're walking down the street, say in Antigua, if you see a woman dressed in traje, you know immediately that she probably identifies as indigenous, even though there's some debates about that and some interesting scholarship developing around people who wear traje but don't identify as indigenous. That's for another day. Um, Let me stop for just a second for our listeners. When you say indigenous instead of Kakchikel, I just want to clarify for our listeners, Kakchikel is not the only language or language group in this area. So I just wanted to be clear that we're not using these terms interchangeably here. We use the term indigenous because there's a whole number, I, I don't remember how many in Antigua or Lake Atitlan, but there's a whole number of possibilities of what a person that you encounter could be speaking. Exactly, and thank you for clearing clarifying that there's 22 indigenous languages in Guatemala. So when I say indigenous, it refers to indigenous people, not specifically by ethno-linguistic group, such as Caxical, Quiche, Mam, et cetera, et cetera. So language and clothing, um, as in terms of identity markers, they both index an identity, right? Or point to, or say, I am identifying as X identity, right? Um, or as indigenous in this case. But what I'm finding is that for some women, when they return to their home communities, after working in other towns or in the capital city, or even in other Central American countries, sometimes, not all the time, but they come home and really work to reclaim Caxiquel in terms of language, and they intentionally invest in their local traje. Um, and they do it in a variety of ways. So one of the ways that I find women working to revitalize language is by reclaiming lexical items, right? So uh, reclaiming words that have been lost to Spanish. So for example, um, if we're having a conversation in Caxiquel and we're sitting around a table, somebody might say, please pass me a chair. And if you're a Spanish speaker, you would have recognized the word "sia" at the end of that sentence, right? This is from Spanish. Um, but people who are working on reclaiming lexical items would put that word back into Caxican. Uh, so that's one way that women are doing that work. Um, they're also doing things like working on reclaiming domains or spaces where Caxican um, is not often spoken anymore, or they're trying to do it very publicly and visibly. Um, and oftentimes it earns comments from their fellow town residents, right? So I don't know how much you know about this, Jared, but women's actions are often highly scrutinized. <laughs> oh, really? Especially when it comes to what they wear and what right? they talk about and how they talk, right? right? So, uh, you know, the sort of town gossip about, oh, did you see so-and-so's back from the Capitol? Did you see what she's wearing? Or, oh my goodness, did you hear what came out of her mouth? She, I would have expected Spanish, but she was talking in Caxiquel, right? Those kinds of whispers and gossip um, are, uh, to say overwhelming is is almost an understatement, right? Because it's the thing that everybody's talking about, uh, but it's always behind closed doors or in that whispered fashion, right? So it's clearly very important in the minds of communities. Um, the interesting thing for me and how I chose to go about it is thinking about some of those interactions when, um, women's choices about clothing and language moved from um, something to get whispered about on a street corner into very intentional 
um, spoken words and interactions. Okay, I'm glad you said that. Yeah. Because that's what I was thinking as you were talking, was how intentional is this? I mean, how organized is this? So let's focus on that for a second. So uh, I talk about metalinguistic moments when other people will say, hey, Brenda, I, I would have expected you to be speaking Spanish. It's really great that you're speaking Kirkshikil. Um, and the reason that the book is titled Good Maya Women is that oftentimes when women, young young migrant women who've come back do that work of speaking Kakshikel and wearing traje, other community members term them Good Maya Women. Right? You're good because you haven't gotten away and forgotten our ways of being or who we are as a people. So even though you went out and engaged in the globalized world outside of our town, you still remember our identity. And that has earned you the right to be called a good Maya woman, right? So this is used in a positive way. Absolutely. For most people, right? I mean, all all towns and communities are diverse and have a variety of opinions. And I would say um, I intentionally focus on people who interact with women and think that um, revitalizing Kakshika language and Traje is a really great thing, although there's certainly people who don't think that. Um, and I've got some examples in the book when uh, women basically get rejected and people say, you know what, this is really kind of a silly idea. Why are you doing this? Um, and the funny thing for me, or the really interesting thing, it's maybe not funny, is that even when women are challenged in that way, by people who are their own age or, or whoever it is, they'll often say, you know what, even though you think this is silly, it's actually really important. And I am really strong for doing it, even though you don't approve of me. So some of the sort of um, bigger conclusions in terms of the book that I'm arguing and thinking about is the need to pay very careful attention to how women experience being culture bearers or those who are expected to pass on language and clothing to the next generation. Um, and for this particular set of women, um, it's very empowering, even when uh, they're challenged and maybe not even always supported in doing it. That's fascinating. What drew you to this topic? I wanted to ask you this because I think you mentioned to me before that there was something in particular that sparked your interest in this. So I wanted to ask you that before we move on. Sure. My journey to this topic was a long one. When I first met Judy, I had become interested in indigenous languages because I had been working at a local community office in Richmond, Virginia, where I was living at the time, living and going to school. And there were a group of indigenous migrants who didn't speak any Spanish. And there were all kinds of um, chatter about them that didn't really make much sense in my head. Uh, like, you know, hablan lengua, as, as they speak a tongue that's not a real language. What is that? I remember what Judy talked about before. That's actually a pejorative for them to put it that way. Exactly, right? And I mean, you know, alarm bells were going off in my head going, what is going on? I didn't know a lot at that point. I was, you know, young and uh, a product of my own class racial identity. I just didn't have that much exposure, um, you know, but there are all kinds of things like hablan lengua, they speak a, a, a tongue instead of a language or backwards. They live with chickens, this, that, and the other um, kinds of things that I was hearing in the community. I was like, what on earth does that mean? So I started doing investigation. I decided that I wanted to go and learn more about indigenous Central Americans, which is how I found um, the Kaxi Maya program through Tulane University to go and learn more. Um, 
But what I found over time is that that we have a lot of indigenous people in the world and you know language diversity is uh, huge and it's important because there's so much rich information within languages but also being able to speak your own language is so very much part of the human experience uh, and and trying to make space for all people to be able to do that is huge right i mean if we can't do that we're not respecting each other on a on a daily level so i became really interested in language revitalization um, and then I mentioned I had a hard time working, interviewing because of where I was working um, with men. And so I found that I was always surrounded by women, but there were all kinds of scholarly assumptions and community assumptions about women's roles in language revitalization and ethnic identity um, resurgence and revitalization and what, what they were supposed to be doing. At the same time, I am very much a product of Judy's way of thinking, right? That says, if you have any intention of doing scholarship uh, with a group of people, you had darn well better learn their ways of being and be respectful enough to learn what issues are prevalent for them and what they're doing and what kinds of things are important. Um, and so in doing that, I, you know, over the years came to this project um, and it's very much came out of deep conversations with mentors like Judy, but also really important women uh, in Guatemala, like Ishnad, other teachers in that Kakshikel course, people that I've met um, over the years and interacted with. For our listeners, Ishnal actually comes to New Orleans, I don't remember whether it's every semester or one semester or a year, I forget exactly, but she helps Judy teach the Kakshikel class, right? And I would say, Ishnal, she's one of the most empowered people I know. She's pretty incredible. Okay, I want to go back there for a second. You talked about language diversity. And you know, Judy and I also talked about this idea of globalization leading to language death. And I asked her the question, as we globalize, will that mean fewer and fewer languages or more and more languages? Um, Joyce, in my observations and experience, globalization seems to be a language killer. But if I remember correctly from our conversations, you argue the opposite. Do you argue the opposite? No, but yes. <laughs> so globalization and, and the way that we're going about globalization today absolutely puts a lot of languages at risk, particularly because of those economic factors we talked about and that you and Judy talked about. Um, but at the same time, this book is asking for a more nuanced approach to globalization. Um, so I'm arguing that out of globalization in this particular instance, um, in, in a particular form of migration, comes a resurgence and a reinvestment in indigenous ethnic identity. But that is among a gr small group of women, not all people. Um, I'm not making the case that it's an organized effort or that there is entire community buy-in, all of which are things that you would really need in order to have a successful movement. And, you know, Guatemala is in a really interesting situation because Caxiquel uh, has a lot of institutionalized support, and yet it's still every year and every generation is increasingly in danger of uh, losing more domains, more speakers. So for me, it's not about black or black and white, yes or no, but can we recognize some of the complexities that happen out of really quite frankly, um, intense and complex global systems, right? So it's not an all and, but 
Um, these are some major trends, but we've also got to recognize the kind of ethnographic reality on the ground that might go against or work against uh, some of those major assumptions. Joyce, before we finish up, I want to follow up on that for a second, because, you know, when I listen to people talk about their particular field where they work, I inevitably compare it in my mind to the one I work in. And one of the things I've noticed, at least in Guatemala, is, let me say, the people seem to have a desire to push against some of these trends more than I've seen from people in other places. Um, I've seen in other places that people there, you know, okay, we notice we're losing our language, uh, that we're being merged into a more dominant language, but that's just the way it is. Or they're sad about it, but they see it as inevitable. Uh, for whatever reason, in Guatemala, I see maybe it's because people have been working with them and because their ideas have been cultivated over the decades. Or maybe it's because there's such a clear distinction between indigenous and Spanish. I'm not exactly sure. But I perceive an active desire to push against some of these forces that a, a desire that I don't see in other places. I think that's a positive thing. I would certainly agree. But why do you think that might be? Any idea? I would certainly agree. Uh, and I think that it's, a, like most things, a multitude of factors. So one is that the, the Maya have a very long history of continuing their language um, traditions, uh, along with others, right? Um, like food, clothing, religion, et cetera, et cetera, um, to varying degrees for each of those, but they have a long history of doing this. And part of it is about um, that history of resistance. Some of it's about how we're socialized into the world, right? Like these are really important markers for a lot of indigenous people in Guatemala. How could you ever think about giving them up? Um, and, and why would you, right? I mean, the kinds of forces at play to encourage people to um, give them up aren't always valued. So in terms of marginalized peoples, well, of course, you're going to be discriminated against for speaking our language. That's just how it is. The world's been that way for hundreds of years at this point. Um, there are some arguments to be made that the economic forces at play today are, are more powerful than ever before. And of course, now we've got these institutionalized efforts to revitalize and protect indigenous languages. Those are certainly very important factors. And I'm really interested to see how scholarship handles those as we get deeper and deeper into the 21st century. Well, at the very minimum, it demonstrates the inherent value of these things when you have organizations and institutions putting value on them. And a lot of endangered languages around the world don't have that, right? You know, so, and also the Mayan languages have a very developed and long history, even pre-colonial, of development of culture and writing, science and ideas, and all of these things. And that surely helps too, right? When other places don't have these things nearly as developed. But, you know, finishing up here, sociolinguistics and language. I've, I've often joked that I'm an anthropologist, but that I have to say linguistic anthropologist because I know nothing about archaeology and nothing about physical anthropology. And the only things I know about cultural anthropology are the things I have to know to be a linguistic anthropologist. But you consider yourself a cultural anthropologist. So what is it about sociolinguistics and language that fascinates you? Thank you for asking me this question. It's such an important <laughs> one. 
You know, I am technically a cultural anthropologist, uh, and I was trained by Judy, who has, you know, of course, two PhDs, one in linguistics and one in cultural anthropology. Uh, so it's perhaps not a surprise. But the thing about language is that it is so very powerful. It has a lot to do with how we see the world, how we think about it, what and how we decide to do, how we engage with others. The very ways that we talk to and about each other inform so much of and reproduce some of the, the challenges. You know, I'm really interested in social justice. Um, they can reproduce or challenge the kinds of hierarchies that we have established in our world. So even if you think about examples here in the United States, uh, how we talk about, like, look at, look at post-Katrina discussions in the media, um, who was looting and who was getting supplies. Um, that is not a coincidence that mostly black identified people were talked about as looting and white identified people were talked about as gathering supplies, right? Yeah, unfortunately you saw that in the memes and you saw that on the news. And yeah, yeah, you're right, that happened. Yeah, so as a person interested in working towards a better world, which is really idealistic of me, but I, I just can't help it. Um, language is fundamental to how we do that. I, I don't think that we can work towards a, a better, more inclusive future without also thinking about how we talk and what we say. So as a, as a cultural anthropologist, I just can't ever ignore language. Yeah, that's basically it. One of the things you said earlier about how we talk to each other, also, if you know the language and if you know the registers, you can tell how people view each other by how they speak to each other as well, right? by what registers they use and so on. But let's bring it back to the women in order to close. Is there an intersection, therefore, between feminism or the way that you study these Mayan women and linguistics as a field, uh, as an intellectual space? Is there an intersection? I think so, and I think it's a particularly productive one. So a lot of uh, sociolinguistics is interested in social justice, particularly as we move through um, more and more questions of racialization. If you if you look at the linguistic anthropological literature, there's some really fascinating stuff coming out. Um, and there's some really interesting work in sociolinguistics about the role of gender and how it plays out in language and how people talk and what they choose to talk. But I think that accounting for intersectionality coming out of the field of feminism and being really true to the way that um, anthropologists and feminists both hope to do work that is representative of and in collaboration with the communities we work with, um, that's where the real power of, of these two fields lies, uh, I think, uh, in terms of creating transformative futures where we're working towards a more just world, right? The combination of the astute observations and critical insights coming out of sociolinguistics, linguistic anthropology, combined with uh, work coming out of gender and women's studies fields and feminism, um, I think is, is really powerful. Well, Joyce, I appreciate you talking to us. This was fascinating. I think this will probably end up being a very popular episode. I think these are the kinds of things that people don't necessarily know about or that they don't necessarily think about or they have incorrect impressions about. 
So I appreciate you talking to us and telling us more about it. Uh, let me finish up by pointing out, if you would, I want to put this up on the show notes for this episode at weeklylinguist.com. Uh, this is episode seven. So just go to the website, find episode seven, go there, and you'll find the show notes. But the Stone Center at Tulane has a resource for beginning Kachikel. Uh, I have the link here. I will put that up. Is that something available to people who just want to start getting introduced to Kachikel? They can just go there and check that out? They sure can. It's a product made out of the Kachikel course that happens every year, Ach. There's some really great teachers up there, and it uses best practices for language learning. So you log on to this website, um, and teachers guide you through uh, videos and audio files of repeating and working on some of the basic sounds. So if you're interested, it's a great way to get started. Um, and certainly, thanks for having me today. It's been a real pleasure. remember to check out the show notes at weeklylinguist.com there you will find further information about this episode like more information about the guest a selected bibliography and any links mentioned in this episode as the saying goes if you enjoyed the podcast tell a friend if you didn't tell us you can tell a friend by rating us five stars on itunes and by writing a glowing endorsement in the reviews don't forget to subscribe when you're done and follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Weekly Linguist. For any feedback, positive or criti- critical, <laughs> write to us at podcast at weeklylinguist.com. Tell us what you think, what we can do better, or even suggest to topic, uh, a topic for an upcoming episode. Uh-huh.